0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
3: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, he's given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today, our interview of the week will be with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He's the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. We'll also give you the headline news. The governor had a press conference earlier in the day with new covid measures and we'll share a little look at the lighter side of the news well as mentioned governor kate brown on friday announced the most extensive set of restrictions since her march stay-at-home order once again closing some businesses restricting social gatherings in an attempt to slow the rapid spread of coronavirus across the state she's uh, limiting all bars and restaurants to take out only close all gyms prohibiting indoor and outdoor gatherings to no more than six people from two different households, limiting capacity at grocery stores and pharmacies, and allowing churches and faith groups to accommodate indoor crowds no larger than 25. That's half of the 50 that had been in place before. Well, the statewide freeze, as the governor referred to it, will be effective next Wednesday and run through December 2nd. So if you were wondering about your uh, Thanksgiving gathering these are the rules in place in the state of Oregon. While well, the sweeping restrictions, they come at the end of a brutal week. Oregon set a single-day record for positive COVID-19 cases, broke new records for hospitalizations, and saw the state's overall share of cases tilt toward the Portland metro area for the first time since July. Well, a confluence of negative trends accelerated action by the governor, who announced one week ago that certain Oregon counties would be uh, um, placed on two-week pause for social activities beginning this Wednesday. That was yesterday, or the day before yesterday, rather. Uh, troubled by the pandemic's trajectory and the rising number of Oregonians in the hospital, the governor is now upping the restrictions and expanding them statewide, an implicit acknowledgement that her original plan didn't go far enough. Well, Brown and fellow West Coast Governor Jay Inslee and Gavin Newsom also issued warnings on Friday that people traveling to any of the three states should self-quarantine for 14 days if they must travel. Oregon's recent surge, which has uh, seen daily cases double, came as the calendar turned to fall, and COVID-19 fatigue set in for many. Well, health experts had long said to expect another wave in cases of uh, people shunned Uh, or ignored health guidance to wear masks and practice social distancing. And, of course, as the uh, weather uh, gets cooler, people are inside and together more. Well, in the past week, Multnomah County's per capita case rate outpaced those of any other West Coast county that uh, are home to major cities, according to data compiled by the New York Times and reviewed by the Oregonian. Well, at least some bars and restaurants, including several co-owned by Ezra Karif. Uh, Like the old gold and tough luck preemptively shuttered indoor dining on Thursday, the governor's freeze appears to be somewhere in between her pause plan and her statewide stay-at-home order in effect from March through May. Governor Brown has uh, long warned that she would implement broad restrictions if necessary, but she has uh, been reluctant to move too aggressively for fear of uh, cratering the economy and sending more Oregonians back into record unemployment, as seen Uh, Early in the pandemic. Well, the new freeze will apply to barbershops, hair salons, homeless shelters, outdoor recreation and sports programs, including Pac 12 college football games. They're also exempt. Uh, Similarly, child care programs and K through 12 schools are not included in the new freeze. The governor's orders stipulate social gatherings, both indoor and outdoor, should be limited to six people from no more than two households. Faith groups, as I mentioned, are capped at twenty-five attendees indoors or 50 outdoors, and that's effective next week. Grocery and retail stores will be capped at 75% of normal occupancy, and states uh, encourages people to use curbside pickup when possible. Well, the rapid coronavirus spread in Oregon mirrors a trend nationally, but the rates here, while alarming, fall well below the virus expansion in Spokane, in Boise, Salt Lake City, and Denver where per capita rates in some cases are nearly quadruple the Portland region's figures. So that's at least something to be grateful for. According to modeling released by the state on Friday, identified coronavirus cases could remain near the current average of 900 a day or spike to 1,500 in the weeks ahead. State officials use new software to calculate those scenarios. The report lacked many key features from previous modeling, however, including projections of severe cases, That would require hospitalization and would lead to death. That's a notable omission given the state's overreaching focus on preventing hospitalizations from becoming overwhelmed and officials' refusal to provide a revised timeline for when that could happen. Well, that modeling appears to assume a reproductive rate of one47 meaning that each person infected spread it, on average, to 1.47 additional people. That's a far higher transmission rate for Oregon than other models have projected. But the report also mentions a lower figure, 1.29. State officials didn't immediately clarify if the lower figure is what the model is based on or if it was a typo. Now, should Oregon's transmission rate fall below 1%, The state would still see essentially the same number of daily cases in the weeks ahead. And that would likely send even more people to the hospital where active hospitalizations are already at an all-time high, surpassing 300. Well, the governor announced these new measures at a time when the numbers in the state of Oregon are at their highest. Um, Oregon's reported 1,122 new coronavirus cases on Thursday. That's the most in a single day so far during the pandemic. Over the past eight days, Oregon has reported its eighth uh, highest daily uh, case counts so far during the pandemic, ranging from 723 cases to 1,122 cases. During that stretch, Oregon has averaged 866 cases per day. Now, along with that, there have also been some deaths in the state of Oregon, uh, and that is what prompted the governor to make the announcement uh, that she made in a press conference earlier today. Taking a look at national headlines, the National Republican Senatorial Committee is spotlighting that it now uh, has more than a dozen senior officials and staffers on the ground in Georgia. And the Senate Republican reelection arm is emphasizing that it's making major investments in communications, data, field and digital operations in the state's twin Senate runoff elections, which will decide whether the GOP holds on to its majority in the chamber or if the Democrats will control both houses of Congress and the White House. This is a presidential-level voter contact operation that's unprecedented and will be a key part of success for the, camp, the campaigns in Georgia, the National um, Republican Senatorial Committee communications director said on Thursday. Well, the committee touts that it and the campaigns of Republican Senator David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler have hauled it over $32 million in fundraising over the past six days as they gear up for the January 5th runoff elections. The counterpart, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, announced earlier this week that they plan a multi-million-dollar field effort to register and turn out Georgia voters. Some are even recruiting people from outside the state to move into the state in order to vote for their candidate. Well, the DSCC told Fox News that their efforts include on-the-ground organizers, direct mail phones and text messages, as well as digital mobilization efforts. Things are heating up in Georgia, while at the same time, hand-counting of votes – has begun in that state. Every single presidential ballot will be recounted by hand. In other developments, the court says that the Pennsylvania Secretary of State lacked the authority to change the deadline two days before the election. And what that will mean in terms of the the number of ballots that have been considered, we'll have to follow that story into next week. And Democrats have raised $280,000 for the Georgia Senate runoffs, runoffs rather, while um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is pushing to embrace the base. Lindsey Graham says he plans to counter the tsunami of liberal money by donating a million dollars himself to help the Georgia Senate candidates. Justice Alito, he has warned of dangers to free speech, religious liberty in the Federalist Society address, saying religious liberty and free speech are among America's personal freedoms, potentially imperiled by government overreach during the coronavirus pandemic. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito warned yesterday tolerance for opposing views is now in short supply. He added to a virtual keynote speech to a conference of the conservative Federalist Society in which he referenced the current state of discourse in the in the United States law schools and the broader academy. Community, academic community. Many recent law school graduates claim they face harassment and retaliation for any views that depart from law school orthodoxy, he said. In certain quarters, religious liberty has fast become a disfavored right. For many today, religious liberty is not a cherished freedom. It's often just an excuse for bigotry, and it can't be tolerated even when there's no evidence that anybody has been harmed. He said there was hostility toward unfashionable views before the pandemic, but said that free speech on campuses and at some corporations is now in danger. You can't say that marriage is a union between one man and one woman, Alito said. Until very recently, that's what the vast majority of Americans thought. Now it's considered bigotry. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. And later in the program, we'll take a brief look at the lighter side of the news.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news and share our interview of the week with Erwin Lutzer. Dr. Lutzer is the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, responding courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity. Well, again, taking a look at the the news, the Roman Catholic diocese is seeking Supreme Court emergency relief after the governor of uh, New York's coronavirus restrictions. And Candace Owens is targeting Facebook's third party fact checkers with a lawsuit. Former Vice President Biden's new chief of staff praised uh, Mayor de Blasio for holding a large dinner to put COVID fears to rest. Not sure the, the uh, thinking behind that. And uh, Elizabeth Warren is crediting Biden's wind to the most progressive economic platform ever. Apparently, Trump played no role in that. Uh, By the way, the president is floating multiple unlikely survival scenarios as he weighs his political future. And Glenn uh, Greenwald uh, tears into the media. Schiff and other Democrats for dismissing the Hunter Biden controversy. And a report says North Korea may be militarizing dolphins. Remember the movie The Day of the Dolphin? Apparently that's coming true. Well, the Chicago mayor's lockdown orders uh, canceling Thanksgiving are met with pushback. We'll find out what uh, Oregon Governor Brown's um, lockdown will garner whether that's pushback or what in the state of Oregon. Biden has some room to set health care policy, though it's limited by Congress. He's already said that he'll move by um, virtue of executive orders. And the 2020 election is projected to cost $14 billion. Campaigns spent about $8 billion on ads alone. And the U.S. government appeals an order blocking the TikTok ban from taking effect. Disney CEO Bob Chappick Slammed California for its arbitrary rules, keeping the park closed. Well, Pennsylvania, a court there has ruled in Trump's favor. A Pennsylvania judge just ruled in his favor that the state may not count votes where the voters failed to provide proof of identification and did not uh, cure that problem by November 9th. Andrew McCarthy, in response, says the decision has no bearing on the more notable controversies currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court vis-a-vis whether Pennsylvania State Supreme Court had the authority to extend by three days until November 6th the statutory deadline for mail-in ballots to be received by county election board. And while the state Republican Party has asked the high court to review that state court ruling, the Supreme Court has not yet decided whether to take the case. Though Justice Alito, the justice who handles emergency applications in the Third Circuit, which includes Pennsylvania, has ordered that the late arriving votes, estimated to number about 10,000, be segregated. Biden's lead in Pennsylvania has grown to over 50,000 votes, according to the Washington Examiner. And in Arizona, the Secretary of State's overseeing the voting is vehemently anti-Trump. A detailed look at the voter fraud in a number of states with this basic conclusion, voter fraud exists, but not enough to have swayed the election for Biden. So says National Review. Meanwhile, from Molly Hemingway, among the millions of uh, examples of media bias, I'm struck right now by how coverage post-2016 focused relentlessly for years on Clinton supporters and their emotional trauma and resistance efforts compared to second class and disdainful treatment of the 71 million who voted for Trump. Well, Kimberly Strassel just details how the first bill put forth by Democrats after taking the House was a Democratic dream election reform that would solidify their power. Uh, then Strassel explains Mrs. Pelosi's bill didn't become law despite her attempts this year to jam some of its provisions into coronavirus bills. But it turns out she didn't really need it. Using the virus as an excuse, Democrats and uh, liberal groups brought scores of lawsuits to force states to adopt its provisions. Many Democratic politicians and courts happily agreed. States mailed out ballots to everyone. Judges uh, disregarded statutory deadlines for receipt of votes. They scrapped absentee ballot witness requirements. States set up curbside voting and drop-off boxes. They signed off on ballot harvesting. Meanwhile, the fix, as it were, was in well before anyone started counting votes. Pollsters aside, political operatives understood this campaign would be close, potentially closer in key states than it was in 2016. The Democratic strategy from the start, as evidenced by that legal onslaught, was to get rules in place that would allow them to flood the zone with additional mail-in ballots. Uh, And the quiet part is now going away. Georgia Democrat and Senate candidate John Ossoff has been compensated by a Hong Kong media conglomerate, whose owner has spoken out against pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, according to his most recent financial disclosure. And in a move that only Democrats can possibly think makes sense, they have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez promising to take her New York leftism to Georgia to campaign. Meanwhile, again, the headline, Ossoff quietly discloses financial ties to pro-China Hong Kong media company. Well, Democrats plan big changes should they gain control of the Senate. There's some... um, rather interesting progressive ideas. We'll take a look at that next week. And Ivy League schools have canceled their winter sports and postponed spring sports already. The fear of COVID-19 is high among elites. Mississippi's governor says he won't uh, comply with a Biden shutdown over coronavirus. Tate Reeves was responding to recent comments made by an advisor to President Elect Joe Biden that the U.S. could manage the pandemic by locking down small to medium-sized businesses for up to six weeks. The vaccine is some unpleasant side effects, and Pfizer hopes uh, to have it released by the end of the month, and a New York Times reporter lamented how her life has been ruined for the past year over COVID worries. She used profanity in telling people to wear their masks. Well, social media targets a popular book for the unwoke view of transgenderism. And Target, the retailer, is the latest to cave, removing the Regnery title Irreversible Damage. We're trying to get an interview with its offer. It's an important book. Seven men who ran as women were in office in state legislatures around the country. The story gives a breakdown in life site news of the men and their disturbing policy efforts. And Biden put a man who says he's a woman on his transition team. Voter fraud and irregularities will a minor win for the Trump team in Pennsylvania, as I've mentioned. And Michigan voters have filed a federal lawsuit seeking to toss 1.2 million ballots. Michigan GOP lawmakers have called for a full audit in that state. The Trump campaign, meanwhile, released the initial list of dead Georgia residents that voted in the 2020 election. And a Texas social worker has been charged with 134 counts involving election fraud. Belly laugh of the week. Top officials claims that the uh, 2020 election was the most secure in U.S. history. If that's the case, we need to be really worried. Well, Biden is under pressure from the left to erase student debt, and Biden likely is going to scrap parts of Trump's decision to pull troops from Germany. Well, The 2020 results set Republicans up for success in 2022 and beyond, so argues the Washington Examiner. And election losses leave stunned Democrats rethinking their path forward, saying the message wasn't right. Well at least they re- agree with Republicans on that point. Well spin thrifts, Pelosi and Schumer see three point four trillion dollars as a starting point for the next covid stimulus. And Justice Samuel Alito rips the Supreme Court for not considering church coronavirus lawsuits. And he warns of the the dangers, rather, to free speech and religious liberty. Meanwhile, President Trump is eyeing a digital media empire to take on Fox News and Parler adds five million users as conservatives grow tired of censorship. Well, Fed struck a deal to make a vaccine free at major pharmacies. And Sweden has imposed a partial lockdown for the first time. Massachusetts is prepared to legalize abortion up to the moment of birth, and California set a set to reopen strip clubs before churches. Portland Mayor Wheeler has removed gendered language to be more inclusive in the city. The U.S. has started fiscal year 2021 with a 111% jump in the October deficit, and an appeals court ruled Harvard doesn't discriminate against Asian American applicants. Proponents of ending race-based considerations at U.S. universities were unfazed by Thursday's decisions and decision rather and plan to bring the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? Well, Ticketmaster plans to require proof of a COVID vaccine or a negative test, and black market for negative tests are popping up all across the globe. Michael Cohen's bogus book about Trump is being made into a Hollywood movie and identity politics enabler. Barack Obama says Trump won in 2016 because Americans were spooked by a black man in the white house. That's a quote. Well, that's after electing him for a second term and there was no black man on the 2016 ballot. So I'm not sure if he's made his case ending greenhouse gas emissions may not stop global warming, according to a new survey as well. Meanwhile, Um, computer models are, of course, unreliable, but the scientists here are claiming the world is already past a point of no return for global warming. So why even bother thinking about a Green New Deal? The study affirms that adaptation is the most viable solution. And, The damage we cause when we close down schools, it's worse than we think, according to the American Enterprise Institute. On this day in history, 1982, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is dedicated on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And 1789, looking back quite a ways, Benjamin Franklin writes in a letter to a friend, Jean-Baptiste Leroy, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs a measure lowering the minimum draft age from 21 to 18. 1956, the Supreme Court strikes down laws calling for racial segregation on public buses. And finally, on this day in history, 1969, speaking in Des Moines, Iowa, Vice President Spiro Agnew accuses network television news departments of bias and distortion and urges viewers, viewers rather to lodge complaints. The following September, he would refer to the media's media rather as nattering nabobs of negativism. We might need to revise that and revisit it in the 21st century. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We'll take a quick break. When we return, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. Okay, this little sliver of fun in an otherwise, well, maybe not so fun Friday afternoon. By the way, in the 5 o'clock hour, our interview of the week will be my conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity, an excellent book to familiarize yourself with some of the major challenges of the day and how to respond. So that's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, joining me for a look at the lighter side of the news is the illustrious James Blend. Illustrious.
1: Oh, James. I, I, so what brings the illustriousness today? I mean, that's almost Robert borderline James compliment, is. to be honest.
3: You and I are doing the show via Skype. Yep. You and I can see one another via Skype. And you are sure. wearing a fascinating pullover that has uh, which uh, Disney character is he? That's Pluto. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Pluto. Uh, it's a dizzying number of dogs on your shirt, but nonetheless, um, uh, yeah, you're looking pretty Yeah, a little button-up cardigan. Um, yeah, pretty it's,
1: it's his birthday this year, so it's a commemorative sweater. Oh, but really what it here. comes down to more than anything is that uh, I walked into my clean. studio this morning, and it was really cold in here, and it was the first sweater I could grab.
3: <laughs> yeah, if it's clean, just throw it on. Nobody cares.
1: It's Boy, okay. that's the thing, isn't it now?
3: Yeah, sadly, it is. Well, in the broad general category of it could be worse, breakfast in the U.K. may soon be served without bacon. Ladies and gentlemen, the pandemic has gone too far, and it could be worse here in the United States. The U.K. is facing a possible bacon shortage during the coronavirus lockdown. Uh, They say that a shortage of cured meat could hit the U.K. after the British government barred travel from Denmark, which brings in a quarter of the bacon and all the pork products sold, according to the reports. The travel ban on the Scandinavian country comes as it struggles with a mutated uh, version of the coronavirus that's been found in farmed minks and in some humans, according to The Sun. Pork products, however, can reportedly still enter the UK via ferries or on unaccompanied trailers, but the ban restricts freight drivers, who've um, been in Denmark in the last 14 days and do not reside in England, according to the report. What's more, ships and planes departing from Denmark and with items including bacon and pork products won't be allowed in. So if you think you've got it bad, you could be facing a bacon shortage.
1: I mean, I, I was. But I feel better. Early in the, uh, you know, when they were talking about potential, you know, s- supply chain issues, and we did have some shortages here or there for a while, it was a little tough to get a hold of beef and the, uh, perhaps in the style that you would have liked it. And you, know, you put an order in at the supermarket and get, uh, you know, chopped uh, turkey breast instead of chopped beef. Not that that happened to me, and I'm not bitter. Uh, but, uh, the, uh, the, the reality of it is you, you don't think about it anymore. You think kind of that that is not something that happens, not something that's going to happen. But bacon, they went right for bacon. I mean, I can handle the toilet paper. Okay, I really can't handle toilet paper being gone, <laughs> but I happen to be stocked up anyway. Uh, but the bacon. No, I, so I, that's, that's that's automatic therapy after the pl- pandemic. Loss of bacon right there.
3: And the government should have to pay for it. (laughs) Well, if Pelosi gets her way, they probably will. George Rores, he's 65. He used to create the magical world of Rio de Janeiro's Carnival uh, with its colorful costumes and fantastic floats. But we're now in a pandemic. So the Brazil artist is painting masks for those who want to show their face. He actually paints a portrait of the bottom half of their face on the mask. Well, now in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, he's using his art to make masks that don't attempt to disguise or accentuate, but to be as real as possible. Uh, he paints face masks that are so accurate as to be uncanny. As he speaks, uh, wearing his mask, his mouth like that of the ventriloquist does not appear to move. He says, I use this mask in order to not lose my identity. Uh, he paints the person's lower face on a uh, uh, onto a white mask taking time over the details like the skin hue and the lips and so on. And the masks have become so popular with people who don't want to hide their face during the pandemic, uh, but are keen to protect themselves against the virus. It's vital that people look after themselves. It's good that people use masks, he said, and I've had a real positive reaction. People laugh sometimes uh, that was meant to be um, something that brings joy. And so if you want to have your face seen, Find an artist who can render the lower half of your face accurately. Now, the problem is you're not supposed to wear the same mask over and over again without laundering, and I'm not sure it holds up uh, to that. But um, I kind of think the mask is a great idea. What I do for the lower half of my face is uh, of no interest to anyone. So you just make that topper half, uh, that top half look a little better, and you can go on your way with a uh, little effort.
1: I just love the fact that this is one of the few things I love about the mask. I can make any face I want at people, so I don't necessarily (laughs) need the mask to emulate what's going on under there.
3: Well, there you go. Well, the FDA granted emergency authorization to a new treatment for patients with COVID-19, coronavirus infection this week. The drug is, um, it's a, let's see, monoclonal antibody therapy. It's approved for a mild to moderate infection in patients over the age of 12, but people are having a hard time getting past one part of the experimental medication from Eli Lilly. Uh, It's name. Well, Twitter users had some thoughts on the subject and I won't refute all of them, but the name bam, Lanny Vimab, bam, Lanny Vimab. That's the name uh, of the,
1: uh, can't wait for the commercial for this one.
3: (laughs) Clonal antibody uh, therapy. Maybe they want the name to be so difficult to say uh, that they won't be overrun with requests for the drug, but for the sake of those who are interested, Bam Lanny Vimab. Say that three times uh, when you call your doctor. Bam Lanny Vimab. I can just, just imagine this
1: attractive couple in probably in their 40s, maybe 50s. I thought for sure I was going to get very sick, and then my doctor offered me Bam Lanny Vimab. <laughs> Close. As 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 music plays gently in the background, we're now ten seconds into the sixty-second commercial, and now the side effects uh, descriptions kick in. Yeah. <laughs>
3: That is always so comical to me. I mean, I really admire people who come up with drug therapies (laughs) to address real serious problems. But then when you hear – you know, having an advertisement is kind of a comical thing in and of itself. But then when you hear the list of side effects, and it may include death, it's just like, okay, I think I'll live with whatever the malady was rather than the uh, other. You know, it's like
1: depression medication medication with suicide as a side effect. I'm like,
3: um,
1: (laughs) "Mm, that seems to miss the –
3: Point,
1: but yeah, it, it,
3: Bam Lanny Vimab, Bam Lanny
1: Vimab. Wow, that's uh, it's kind of like it kind of reminds me of that who put the Bam and the Bammy Lemmy Vimab. <laughs> wow.
3: Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a few minutes to take a look at the lighter side of the news. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Who put the bam in the bam, lammy bim? Who put the bam in the bam, lammy bim, ab? I think James is on to something. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a quick look at the lighter side of the news. Then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll share our interview of the week with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. We will not be silenced, responding courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity. Well, sources close to Winston Davis says he is totally messed up as his girlfriend, Wendy Fitzpatrick, keeps referring to herself as his wife-elect. And any and every public gathering with close family and friends. Well, this awkward situation is happening to Winston, despite no clear moment in which uh, it ever entered his mind that Wendy was the one or that he was even getting close to asking her the question to make sure an interim title even remotely appropriate. Apparently, it's just a girlfriend, not a fiance, but she was referring to to (laughs) herself as The wife-elect, despite no official word from her boyfriend. Not altogether different when you're talking about a yet-to-be-certified election. We think we know who the winner will be, but um, you can't actually be the so-and-so elect until it's certified. And she hasn't been certified, and neither has this election, although it's – you know, they, almost a foregone conclusion. It's it's
1: one of those things that's always kind of bugged me because I mean they've been doing it for you know years and years and years. I mean the president-elect Trump the day after the election last time as well. But uh, the the thing that kind of gets me is it's like it shows how lazy we are. There's one word that makes it correct that you just tack on the beginning of it. The presumptive president-elect. No problem with that.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: President-elect problem with that regardless of party i didn't like it with trump i didn't like it when they did it with bush obama no, none of it it's just like wait till the, you're not until the electoral college now i i you know i think it's always overhyped the idea of the face the faithless elector in the electoral college but uh you know in until the uh proverbial battle is over uh things can
3: still change
1: they probably won't
3: but they could they yeah could. good point Winston could be heard uh, honey uh, starting to interject before Wendy went ahead and dialed up local caterers and contractors to make arrangements for the wedding, which was surely going to unify their two families who haven't always gotten along and bring about a glorious time of family healing. Well, Wendy had even started delegating bridesmaids to begin getting (laughs) fitted for their dresses, unironically telling members of her family that she was setting up an office of the wife elect. Well, it goes on from there, but uh, you might want to wait till the bell is rung before you uh, start See, making I, those kinds of arrangements. I dealt in just saying.
1: I, I dealt in past when when I uh, when I got engaged to my wife, I started referring to her as the ex girlfriend. <laughs> well, there you go. And now, you know, to this elaborate. day, to this day, she's my ex fiance.
3: Yeah, I so, referred you know. to Dan once as my first husband.
1: Oh, that when you don't want to use. Husband. Yeah, a, I got
3: lots of letters and emails. about <laughs> That one's a little more controversial I wasn't implying anything. I just, you know, meant he was my first and I didn't intend to have any others. Well, moving along, lockdown, the noun uh, that has come to define so many lives across the world in 2020 has been named word of the year. That's by Collins dictionary. It's defined by the dictionary as the imposition of stringent restrictions on travel, social interaction and access to public spaces. And its usage has boomed over the last year. The 4.5 billion word Collins corpus written material from websites, books and newspapers, as well as spoken material from radio television and conversations registered a 6,000% increase in its usage in 2019. There were 4,000 recorded instances of lockdown being used in 2020. This had soared to more than a quarter of a million. So that is the, um, uh, the word of the year others, coronavirus on Uh, Any one of uh, a group of RNA contained viruses. Furlough is another of the words that it was now on the list. Um, Let's see. Key uh, key worker or key as two words or as one word. Lockdown. Megxit. M-E-G-X-I-T. That's the withdrawal of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex from royal duties. A video or webcast in which the host eats a large quantity of food is a mukbang. It's a Korean noun, but apparently it's catching on. Self-isolate, social distancing, um, and TikToker. Those were also on that list. Uh, Previous words of the year for Collins include climate strike in 2019, single use in 2018, fake news in 2017, and Brexit in 2016. This year, the top um, uh, 10 include words, as I mentioned, Megxit, defined as the withdrawal of the Duke and Duchess, and the others. It's always interesting to see what words are making their way into the American lexicon without formally making their way into the American lexicon. Well, yesterday was it yesterday or March the 9th or November the 9th? I think it was the 9th marked the 50th anniversary of the legendary Oregon event when a 45 foot sperm whale had washed up on the beach near Florence was exploded in an effort to remove it from the beach. It was a stinking whale problem that created a larger uh, stinking whale problem. Now, did you follow that story when it happened, James? Do you remember? It's
1: a little before my time. I'm not quite 50 yet, but uh, I think I came about upon it when I was a teenager um, in uh, high school because the 20th anniversary came about. And so they had shown the footage. And to be perfectly honest, I was sort of. Mesmerized by the lunacy of the entirety of it, uh, <laughs> it is. Of it is the one of the most beautiful pieces of unintentional comedy gold that has ever been broadcast, <laughs> uh, and it is. I mean, you know, and and such the way that uh, Paul Linman, you know, KATU legend, uh, did so that uh, I mean, he he, pl- you know, if it, if this was a comedy duo with Paul Linman. And the whale, Paul was the straight man, so to speak. And he he played that role so deadpan. It was, I mean, it was, it's a remarkable piece of footage, but I kind of wish I'd been alive at the time. I, you know, That's the type of thing I'd be like, they're going to blow up a whale? I, I think I got to go down and see that.
3: <laughs> well, a lot of people did. Now, to be clear, it was November 9th, 1970, that this 45-foot sperm whale washed up on the beach. Three days later, on the 12th, the dead whale exploded into history with what has been described as the first ever viral news story. And um, Lindman says even today he can walk out of a Starbucks, he can go uh, to a public place, and people still remind him 50 years on of that uh, event that took the world by storm. They attempted, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, they attempted to um, explode the whale because it was too large to bury. Uh, so this, uh, you know, they had... Uh, People, the the Corps of Engineers came out, the Marine Science Center and so on. They came out to try to calculate how to do this, how to uh, make sure that the debris would go toward the ocean rather than uh, where the public was located in the beaches where people would hang out. Well, that was a massive failure and it was exploded into the history books. And, in fact, you can go to uh, KATU's website, and they have now updated the video of that. You can see the whole thing, the report leading up to it, and how large, very large portions of the sperm whale, which went the opposite direction, which is toward the beach, actually destroy, <laughs> destroyed a convertible that had the top up uh, that was some distance away in the parking lot. It was, to put it mildly, a stinking mess.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's it goes without saying that uh... – you got to take care of that one way or the other. It's funny. A couple of years ago, um, after he retired from radio himself, uh, it just happened one day that uh, Paul Lindman was in our building, in our offices. Yeah. And I saw him there. I made sure that I, I introduced myself. You know, just a longtime fan. Really appreciate everything you did. And, man, I bit my tongue so hard. I wanted to start asking questions about the whale. And I knew. Like everybody I, else. I know. And I I was so determined Not to be everybody else. And I didn't, but it took, it really took serious effort to not go there. And I don't think anybody did, but, oh, it was tough because I just wanted to say, I got to ask about the whale.
3: And I know the look I well, would have been, gotten.
1: So, you know, been a
3: very good sport for these last. 50 yes, he years has because it comes up certainly every year. But in uh, in between time, people are always asking him about it.
1: Well, the calls well, we come are, from uh, further and further away now, too, because this thing travels even now thanks to the Internet.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are out of time, so we need to take a break. But when we come back, uh, we will give you an opportunity to hear from our interview of the week. Erwin Lutzer we will not be silenced. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. I've been looking forward to the conversation I'm just about to engage in with Dr. Lutzer. Every day it seems that here in America our society is falling farther away from Christian values and common decency, and many of us are unsure how to respond, but respond we must. Well in his latest book, we will not be silenced, responding courageously to our cultural uh, culture's assault on Christianity. My guest, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, he equips readers with the truth of Scripture to help live out our convictions against the growing tide of hostility. Dr. David. But Jeremiah, he points out in the foreword that the book examines every cultural issue that we're facing. Nothing is left out. It addresses diversity issues, racial issues, gender issues, social justice, and much more. Once again, we will not be silenced, arms believers with a deeper understanding of the hurts and concerns of non-believers with regard to social issues, so the church is able to respond in a compassionate and gentle manner. Well, Dr. Lutzer is the pastor emeritus of the Moody Church, where he served as the senior pastor for 36 years, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and Loyola University. He's the author of numerous books, including the gold medallion award winner, Hitler's Cross, and the bestseller, One Minute After You Die. He's also a teacher on radio programs heard on more than 700 stations. We are delighted to have him with us today to talk about this very timely book, We Will Not Be Silenced. Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: I'm so glad that I can join you and uh, so glad for your ministry.
3: Well, I appreciate your encouragement. This is such a timely book. I, I, I suppose one would wonder, is this a prophetic screed or is this just, um, you know, having the insight to see where our country has been going for a very long period of time uh, and how we as the church ought to respond uh, and the need for us to be aware? What inspired you to release this book at this time and to write it in general for the sake of the church and the culture?
2: Well, you know, the way it has worked out, first of all, let me say, I wrote the book when I began to realize that the radical left does not believe that America can be fixed. It must be destroyed. And then on the foundations, on the rubble of our Christian Judeo heritage, they want to build a new America based on Marxist principles. And, you know, one of the things that I discovered, in fact, the first chapter is on Marxism, I didn't realize that cultural Marxism, which means that Marxism is to be implemented incrementally, Mm -hmm. really underlies everything that is happening in our society that isn't good. And that's why I get into diversity issues, you know, a biblical view of race as opposed to social justice. And there's a right way to talk about social justice, but there's also a wrong way and then critical race theory why it is in fact i might say that one of the reasons i wrote it among many others is so that when parents send their kids off to school and they come back hating america parents would understand what is being taught to my Mm -hmm. child about america and why do they come back saying that we are such a racist nation and uh, all of those other things but I have eight different assaults that are directed against the church, but each chapter ends with an admonition as to what I think the church should be doing.
3: And I appreciate that so much, because one can leave hopeless when you consider where we stand as a nation today. I think for many people, the wake-up call really began with this latest presidential election, but it's it's healthy for us to have a clear understanding of what direction the culture is taking. I think it's important to point out um, a statement that you make in the book to, to give our listeners some perspective on where you come from. You write that, I am opposed to a form of Christianity that judges without licensing and sees the faults of others without seeing our own. As a pastor my heart breaks for those who hurt who are confused and who don't know where to turn for help our churches should be sanctuaries for the downtrodden the oppressed and the lonely uh, they should be hospitals for the soul you take a very compassionate um, approach but i am grateful to say that it's also a thoroughly biblical approach to the issues confronting us today as the church and a nation
2: as a matter of fact when it comes to issues of sexuality for example I point out it is much better to be thought of as hateful and speak the truth than to speak lies with compassionate tones and um, a sense of caring. So, yes, what I do is emphasize the need for truth. There's always that balance, love and truth. But I really do think that unless we approach the culture with brokenness, unless that happens, you know, we aren't going to be heard. And so what we need to do is to try to understand where people are coming from and to listen to them. By the way, it just comes to mind that one of my chapters, for example, is on propaganda. Mm -hmm. And I point out that the purpose of propaganda is to so change people's perception of reality that no matter how much counter evidence, they will not change their minds, And so how are we going to change people's minds? Well, we do need to listen and so forth, but we are actually, and I know that there's a lot of um, information swirling around right now because of the uh, presidential election. But, you know, my heart breaks because I think we are on the verge of seeing things against the church that we've never seen before. And, um, you know, we could talk about any one of these things, but even the sexualization of children, for example, or socialism, which happens to be, I think, one of the longest chapters in my book. So the at what is happening, and by the way, thank you so much for your intro, you ask whether or not it's a prophetic book. Actually, this book was written and completed in about um, August almost of this year, Well, I guess maybe a little bit earlier than that. Let's just say uh, July and August. And so it deals with the tearing down of monuments, what's going on there, the whole issue of race in America, the way in which it's being approached, what children and young people are learning today in their schools. So all those issues are ones that I've talked about.
3: Yes, yes. Well, I want to cover much of that as much as our time will permit, but let's begin uh, with a subject that you mentioned early on, and that is cultural Marxism. The word is being used quite often these days, but let's talk about what it is and what its goals are so that we, as the body of Christ, those of us who are committed to biblical truth, uh, what we need to know in order to effectively minister to our communities and confront falsehood.
2: Thank you so much for asking that. That's one of the most important questions. When Marx gave his theories, we know that in Russia and other countries, Marxism came with a a revolution with guns and the killing of millions of people and so forth. Marx is basically statism, that the Mm -hmm. state has to take over the means of production. The state has to take the place of God all right. He believed that the key to history was oppression. And if we could just rid the world of oppression, everybody would live together in harmony and peace. And here's a very important point. He believed that the family, the nuclear family, was a great hindrance to the glories and the beauty of the Marxist state. Why? Families were a unit of oppression. You know, husbands oppressed their wives, parents oppressed their children, they took them to church, God was the ultimate oppressor. And so what he needed to do is to break up the nuclear family. And furthermore, families tend to pass on their wealth. Well, that's contrary to the Marxist view of inequality. So what he did is he said that women have to work outside the home, The children have to be raised by the state and so forth. Okay, that's Marxism. Cultural Marxism says we can bring these same changes about, but do it incrementally so that people will want Marxism because they will see how valuable it is and they will see its benefits. So what we can do by capturing law, by capturing education, by capturing the media, and even elections, we can bring about the beauties of Marxism, as it is believed. We can do that without killing people. We can do it even, quote, uh, demographically, (laughs) of course I mean Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of democracy. We can do it that way, and so his whole, uh, excuse me, so cultural Marxism comes along and says, let's do it bit by bit. Now, people need to understand, as I've emphasized, that the goals are the same. The state has to be supreme. And dependence upon the state is absolutely important. And uh, so that's why oftentimes you find this lurch toward socialism.
3: hmm
2: Oh, I could talk about that for a moment. Let me just well, fact, say this. That
3: <laughs> we're going to take a break and we'll give you an opportunity to talk about that. Finish your thought, but we'll return and talk a bit about socialism.
2: Yeah, socialism always talks about how to divide wealth. It never talks about creating it because it can't create it that's simply in a couple of sentences.
3: <laughs> hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. His latest book, We Will Not Be Silenced: Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. We need to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity, covering all of the major issues of our day and giving us an understanding, but also a Christian perspective on how we can respond to the culture. Now, just before the break, we were talking about your longest chapter, which is on socialism and why it's so attractive and why it must fail and how we as believers should respond because of... Along with the discussion of socialism, we're hearing, and have for quite some time, statements that Jesus was a socialist, and this is more uh, reflective of Christianity than is capitalism, for example.
2: Yeah, very good questions. Uh, Here's the important thing. As I mentioned before the break, socialism only talks about how to divide wealth and not how to create it. And the reason is because socialism cannot create wealth. When you have equality of income, for example, Rebecca and I have been in Russia where in the 1980s where a doctor was paid essentially as much as other hospital workers. Well, obviously there was a great um, dearth of doctors who would want to be a doctor. So socialism has to control wages. It has to control earnings. It cannot create wealth. And so when it runs out of money... You remember Margaret Thatcher's very famous line when she says the problem with socialism is that pretty soon you run out of people's, other people's money. Well, when you run out of other people's money, there's only one thing that the government can do, and that is to create more money. And so you have rampant inflation as all of these things begin to happen. Only the freedom of capitalism is able to create wealth. I want to throw this in, and then I'll answer your question about Jesus. But um, it has been said, why is it that mice die in mouse traps?" Well, the answer is because they don't understand why the cheese is free. Now, that being said, was Jesus a socialist? Absolutely not. I point out that in the New Testament, for example, there was no socialism. But let's talk about Jesus. Jesus told a parable— in which he said that there was one man who was given 10 talents, and another man was given five, and another three, and another one. Jesus knew that there would not be equality of income. We should seek equality of opportunity for people, but there will never be equality of outcomes. There's, also, there's always going to be a difference as to how much people earn and their station in life. What the Bible does require, however, is that everybody is responsible for what they have. Luke twelve forty eight: On unto whom much is given, much is required. Those who haven't received much will be judged by a different standard. God is not a socialist. He didn't treat um, Hammurabi the way he treated Abraham. He sovereignly saves Abraham and chooses the Jews. And so the whole idea that you're going to have socialism, which is imposed by the state and forced upon us, is really totally foreign to the scriptures.
3: You also have a chapter, and I, I love that you included this because it's so important today. One of the most interesting chapters is on propaganda. Now, what are the goals and how are these goals being achieved? And, and what's the, the means by which propaganda uh, is being um, being used
2: Propaganda is used in many different ways. Sometimes slogans, for example, contain a lot of propaganda. I refer to Hitler because the same-sex movement, the homosexual movement in the early 80s, wrote a book on how they were going to change America's perception of homosexuality. And they actually said that um, they were relying on some things that Hitler had said because Hitler said that with the right use of propaganda you can make heaven appear like hell and hell appear like heaven so let's um, there are different ways it's done but let's dive into this business of slogans when Hitler starved children he called it putting them on a low calorie diet and you think for example in our abortion clinics today nobody talking talks about the killing of preborn infants What do they talk about? Uh, They talk about uh, the termination of a pregnancy and uh, a woman's right to choose. So what you do is you hide what you are doing. When Hitler wanted to exterminate the Jews, he called it the cleansing of the land. And today, of course, you oftentimes have slogans. Let's even talk about Black Lives Matter do black lives matter? Of course they matter. All black lives matter, including the ones that are shot oftentimes here in the city of Chicago every week. All bl- And I don't mean to imply that only black lives are shot. I'm just simply saying that, of course, black lives matter. But the organization that takes that mantra actually is Marxist. That's why it seeks the destruction of the family that we talked about earlier in the show. And, it, and one of the founders says, we are trained Marxists. Marxist, yes. What is my point? You use slogans that appear to be good, but you use it to camouflage what it is that you're really going to do. So that's one way propaganda is. The other is you enforce it by fear and hate. And you make people fear that if they don't fall in line, they are going to be in trouble. And we have lots of examples of that happening in our society today. There's a doctor who said that when he gives uh, transgender people or people who think that they are transgender, he cannot tell them about the harm that will come to them if they have transgender surgery because he would be fired as a doctor, so he cannot even practice his trade with what he knows. So we are living at a time when propaganda is put forth with fear and hatred, and so you have what I call cultural streams that oftentimes are very difficult to withstand
3: you um, also have an interesting chapter on how the radical left is teaming up with Islam to destroy America. Now that may seem nonsensical to some of your readers and our listeners, Uh, why that would be the case. I guess the ends justify the means, but can you talk a bit about that very interesting chapter that might surprise your readers?
2: Well, yeah. And the reason that they are together is not because they agree. Uh, you know, um, Islam, of course, a very supremacist religion, wanting to impose Islam, Sharia law. Why would the radical left join with them? Well, in military terms, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So what, what happens is you will always find the left defending Islam. There is separation of church and state. We've heard about that for a long time. But um, when money is used and it is being used to build prayer rooms for Muslim students in our public schools, there's no opposition from the ACLU. More ominously, there are schools today in America where Islam is being taught, and when parents object, the parents are called haters and, and intolerant and everything else. Could you imagine schools where Christianity were taught. And so in that chapter, I also talk about Islam's view of immigration. In the Quran, it is very important to understand that immigration is seen as a means of spreading the faith. Now, there are many Muslims in America who have picked up on Western values. They have no special intention of imposing Islam, but the radicals certainly do, And uh, while I'm on the topic, there are churches today that have, um, you know, a common idea of bringing in an imam for Christian dialogue with Muslims. This is so wrong. I quote a book written by Muslims for Muslims on how to make Islam palatable to Americans so that they are willing to accept it. I'm not opposed to a debate, but where somebody is allowed to give his own view without contradiction and without any rebuttal, oftentimes this leads to a very skewed view of what Islam is really like.
3: We're talking with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, and I think we have time for one more segment. His book is titled, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity, an important book for us to understand the culture, and more importantly, our response as believers, as followers of Christ. One of the things that he uh, states is that um, what a special privilege it is to be called to represent Christ at this pivotal moment in history. We are called for such a time as this, and we must pray that our light might shine more brightly than ever in our darkening world. Now, many of us feel like, Lord God, why did you place me here and why why am I living now? We're more frustrated by it all. And yet, I think the position that he has taken is the right one because God has placed us in this strategic point in history for his good purpose. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Culture's Assault on Christianity. You have a chapter titled Vilify, 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 and how... Uh, disagreements um, are being resolved or failing to be resolved is perhaps a better way of putting it. Can you give us an example of what this means for the church today, our unwillingness to simply be civil to one another, to accept that we have disagreements uh, rather than to vilify one's opponent so that there can not only be um, agreement, but uh, we can't even associate because uh, our opponents are always evil.
2: Exactly. That's the way in which the left looks at things. It's not just that you disagree with me and we have a disagreement, but you disagree with me, therefore you are evil. So you asked, uh, Georgine, the question of give an example. Well, I could give many, but here in Missouri there is a church which last year, just a year ago now, the pastor preached a message on Genesis one twenty-seven saying that uh, there are only two genders now he was so kind he talked about those who struggle with same-sex attraction or those who believe they're transgender in fact the message was so kind and so loving i wondered whether or not he was going to land the plane so to speak but he did (laughs) the next day that church was vilified in the newspapers it was on television throughout missouri and students at the university said, "I can't. I don't know if I can feel safe in a city. In a city of in, in where, this was the city of Columbia. I don't know that I can feel safe in Columbia if there's a church that believes there are only two genders. You know, I deal with this in the book how there's safeism yes. today. Where oh, you said something that offended me. I need a safe place because my oppression is not being." fully realized. Well, anyway, this church had raised, two months before, $420,000 to pay for all the outstanding hospital bills for people in their community. They had been actively involved in the community in so many helpful ways, and in terms of um, the poor and all. You know, it is often said, we need to be known for what we are for and not just for what we are against. This church was widely known for what it was for. But when it came time for them to be against something, everybody, um, everybody forgot that, and this church was vilified. Well, that's coming to a church near you. But that yes. gives an example of how we are living at a time today when we can't, we find civil discourse very difficult because everybody is enraged by something. Everybody is offended by something. And so people are totally para- uh, paralyzed. They don't know what they can say. You know, you just say the wrong thing and people will hop on you and on social media. Pretty soon you will be docs. You'll be taken care of, and you'll be canceled. Look at Drew Brees. You know, he said that he stood for the flag because he wanted to honor it. Well, the mob got after him. He apologized not once but twice. Why? Because today we hear this. Oh, yes, you have the First Amendment. You can express your views. But if you express a wrong view, we will cancel you. Now, in that chapter, I tell one other story that I need to tell very quickly. What you need when you have a revolution always is a pretext. Kristallnacht, 1937, in Germany. Jewish businesses were burned, synagogues were burned, etc. We all know about it historically. That didn't happen in a vacuum. What happened was there was a German diplomat who was shot by a Jewish student in Paris, Hitler told his fire departments and his police to stand back. He said Jewish businesses and synagogues were going to be burned. The man who was shot was Ernst Rott. Now, I can just imagine, and I'm using my imagination here, that there were people marching the streets of Germany. We just want justice for Ernst. Justice for Ernst. Well, We saw that during the riots when we just want justice for George Floyd. We just want justice. So what you need is a pretext that will give legitimacy to your revolution. That also ties in with some of the things that we talked about, propaganda. But today, everybody's enraged and um, freedom of speech is greatly jeopardized because everybody fears what they might say that might be wrong.
3: Absolutely. By the way, today happens to be the anniversary. 1938 was Kristallnacht. Today was the day that occurred in Germany. We're talking about the book, We Will Not Be Silenced. Uh, It's just an excellent book to help us understand the culture, how to respond courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity, and to do so in a way that upholds the standards that Christ has set for us. Now, the final chapter of your book is based on the words of Jesus to the church in Sardis. Strengthen what remains is the phrase. And what do you think Jesus might say and is saying to the church today? Because he still speaks to us through his word.
2: Well, what was wrong with the church in Sardis? They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. And the problem with the church in Sardis was that they no longer saw the world as an enemy, so they embraced their culture. And I suggest that what Jesus would say to the church today is, number one, be sure that you are clear on the gospel, be gospel-driven, and don't get caught up in social justice. Now, there's a right way to define it and a wrong way. That would be a separate discussion. But there are many churches today that no longer evangelize because they are into social justice. Number two, Jesus would talk about the sexuality of the culture. As a matter of fact, what happened in Sardis was the church bought into pagan culture and sexuality. So I point that out. And then I think the third thing that he would say is, Love me more than you love your sin. And there I talk briefly about social media technology, which is a tremendous enemy of the church today. Now it's good. We all use technology. We all use our computers and we use Zoom and everything else. But the point is that so much which is on the Internet is impure. It is instantly addictive. And so I weep for the younger generation caught up in technology. So Jesus would say that, and then he would tell us to be sure to remain strong and to know that how we look in heaven is much more important than how we look on earth.
3: Mm, Amen. Where can our listeners acquire a copy of We Will Not Be Silenced, because every one of them needs a copy of this book?
2: Thank you so much for asking. Of course, they can buy it on Amazon, but there are many listeners who might want to support our Moody Media Ministry? So here's what they can do. They can go to MCM that of course stands for Moody Church Media, but it's all one word MCM Offer O F F E R dot com and for a gift of any amount it will be sent out immediately. That's Offer. dot com. And I want to thank many listeners in advance for helping us running to win is now in more than 20 different countries, all because of our wonderful supporters.
3: Well, Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. But more, most importantly, for this book, We Will Not Be Silenced, it's an important book that covers the issues that the, uh, the Church is facing today and gives us some clear direction on how we might effectively minister in this very time that God has placed us in.
2: Thank you so much, Georgine.
3: Thank you. And once again, I so appreciate uh, what he says. What a special privilege it is to be called to represent Christ at this pivotal moment in history. It may not feel like that. You may wish you were from an, uh, an easier time, and yet God has appointed us to this time. We need to be equipped so that we can, as the subtitle of the book says, respond courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity, because more than anything else, the culture needs Jesus. And if we don't tell them... How will they know? We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ
3: you're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you didn't know, Governor Kate Brown today announced the most extensive set of restrictions since her March stay-at-home order. That was the first set of orders. Once again, closing some businesses and restricting social gatherings. And this is her attempt to slow the rapid spread of coronavirus across the state. She uh, is limiting all bars and restaurants to takeout only. She's closing all gyms. She's prohibiting indoor and outdoor gatherings to no more than six people from two different households, limiting the capacity at grocery stores and pharmacies, and allowing churches and faith groups to accommodate indoor crowds no larger than 25. That's about half of what was in place before. Well, the statewide freeze will be effective next Wednesday through December 2nd. So that will definitely have an impact on uh, many plans for Thanksgiving. Well, the restrictions come at the end of a brutal week, where Oregon set a single-day record for positive COVID-19 cases, uh, broke new records for hospitalizations, and saw the state's overall share of cases tilt toward the Portland metro area for the first time since July. Well, the confluence of negative trends accelerated to action by the governor, who announced one week ago that certain Oregon counties would be placed on a two-week pause for social activities beginning last Wednesday. Well, troubled by the pandemic's trajectory, the rising number of Oregonians in the hospital, she now upped those restrictions and expanded them statewide—an implicit acknowledgment that her original plan didn't go far enough from her perspective. While well, the governor and fellow West Coast governors Jay Inslee and Gavin Newsom also issued warnings uh, today that people traveling to any of the three states along the West Coast should self-quarantine for 14 days if they must travel. Oregon's recent surge, which has seen daily cases double, came as the calendar turned to fall, and COVID-19 fatigue set in for many. Health experts said said to expect another wave of cases as people shunned or ignored health guidance to wear masks and practice uh, social distancing and as things opened up. Well, in the past week, Multnomah County's per capita case rage, rate rather, outpaced those in any other West Coast county that are home to a major city. That's according to data that was compiled by the New York Times and reviewed by the Oregonian. Well, at least some bars and restaurants, including several co-owners, uh, co-owned restaurants like the Old Gold and Tough Luck, presumably, or rather preemptively, shuttered their indoor dining um, on Thursday. Uh, given the the governor's order in uh, this county, uh, her freeze appears to be uh, somewhere in between her pause plan and her statewide stay at home order in effect from March through May. Well, the governor has long warned that she would implement broad restrictions if necessary, but she's been reluctant to move too aggressively for fear of uh, creating and uh, creating the economy rather and sending more Oregonians back into record unemployment as uh, seen early in the pandemic. While well, this new freeze will not apply to barber shops, hair salons, or homeless shelters, outdoor recreation and sports programs, including Pac-12 college football games, are also exempt. Similarly, childcare programs and K-12 schools are not included in the new freeze. The governor's orders stipulate social gatherings, both indoor and outdoor, should be limited to six people from no more than two households, and the church faith groups, as they're referred to by the governor, are capped at 25 attendees indoors or 50 outdoors. I know many churches are beginning to regather. Uh, they're scattering congregants for those larger churches to different um, buildings within the facility, different areas. Uh, this will cut in half what the church is permitted to do. Uh, that takes effect next Thursday, so that won't impact impact this Sunday, but certainly through December 2nd, beginning next weekend. Grocery and retail stores are going to be uh, capped at 75% of normal capacity. States, uh, the state is encouraging people to use curbside pickup when possible. And Oregon's uh, rapid coronavirus spread mirrors a trend nationally as well. But the rates here, while they're pretty alarming, fell well below the virus expansion in Spokane, in Boise, and in Salt Lake City and Denver, where per capita rates in some cases are well nearly quadruple the Portland region's figure. So that's good news in context, but it still um, does not mean that uh, our numbers are acceptable. Well, according to the modeling released by the state, uh, identified coronavirus cases could remain near the current average of about 900 a day or spike to 1,500 a day. We're just below that now in the weeks ahead. Well, state officials used uh, new software to calculate those scenarios. And of course, um, computer models are never, Entirely reliable, but they do give some perspective on what could happen in the state of Oregon um, so far. So keep that in mind, what the the new governor's uh, directives are for the state of Oregon uh, beginning Wednesday, next Wednesday, and running through the 2nd of December. Again, for your Thanksgiving plans, groups no larger than six um, and no more than two households represented uh, if you're going to follow the uh, governor's directive uh, that's what she has said. And this, of course, uh, follows the increase in numbers for the coronavirus uh, restaurants, bars, takeout only some businesses being closed altogether. Now, James, I know you have uh, some views on what the governor is um, is directing. Uh, is that going to and I I know you're probably just in the middle of your lunch. So I apologize. for It's for OK. Calling on you
1: it's all right. I'm moment. here moment. No food in my mouth. <laughs> sure. I promise.
3: Your thoughts on uh, the governor's new directive and the the high numbers in Oregon? You know, I
1: think the thing about it is obviously at this point, you know, we've seen a large spike from Halloween um, and I get that. It's a a younger crowd, so probably a little healthier crowd um, and able to sustain and not, you know, bear down on the health system as much as would if there's older people. Thanksgiving and Christmas, that's when grandma comes and Grandpa comes and. You know people who are more infirm so i i think it's probably man it stinks but it's it's in this particular instance i think probably following these guidelines for thanksgiving are good some of them there are always going to be a little few of them that are you go that's a little bit of theater but um at the end of the day you know i, I think that uh getting those numbers down is important but uh I'm also just, like I said, equally concerned with uh, the hospitalizations and the fatalities. Yeah. And yeah. despite the fact that, you know, today was another day of over a thousand people um, in new cases. That's contracting COVID. Contracting mm-hmm. new cases, correct. Um, that, uh, you know, our death count hasn't changed a whole lot. Yeah, uh, that has
3: remained fairly I mean, steady.
1: I mean we have we have been very very lucky here in the state in that you know we there are states that have had you know as much as we've had the entire time through in a day. Yeah. Um yeah. so I mean I look at that and I you know I I don't like most of these measures but it's hard to argue with results sometimes.
3: Yeah, it is. Well this week I learned that my brother's best friend is not only uh, has been diagnosed with uh, COVID, but he's being hospitalized, was on a ventilator, and now has a uh, major pneumonia. It's hit close to home. And I also have some extended family members by marriage who have uh, family who have contracted COVID as well. It's a serious issue. Um, my plans for having a big bash for my mother's 90th birthday have all tumbled to the ground. Our Thanksgiving plans have now changed, um, but these are necessary changes. You know, For me, my primary concern is protecting her from contracting COVID, and she's definitely, by virtue of her age, um, in the high-risk groups, but these are, these are changes that we're going to have to make uh, in our household, and we'll do that um, and use maybe technology to connect in ways that we never have before. In any event, those are the new directives from the governor, and those begin next Wednesday and run through December 2nd. Hey, uh, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Hope you have a great weekend and join us here again on Monday. We're going to talk with uh, Kelly. Um, Valerie, she's the author of Rest Now, Seven Ways to Say No, Set Boundaries, and Seize Joy. Now, we're probably not as busy as we might otherwise be, but it's a good season to think all of that through. On Tuesday, we'll talk with Jill Eileen Smith. She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament. And then on Wednesday, I'll be making my way to the studio for our Transitional Youth Radiothon. That's coming up on Wednesday morning. Mark your calendars and plan on joining us. There's a lot to discuss about what's happening in our community during this pandemic. Have a great night. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.